0: Well, uh, good morning to everyone uh, watching by live stream, good morning to everybody that is, is here, and it uh, actually kind of feels a little more like a Bible study, uh, uh, even though this was about the size of the church when we came, uh, but it's kind of exciting. and uh, So anyway, uh, glad to be here, and it's going to be interesting for me this morning uh, addressing uh, you guys and then the camera, hopefully I can just kind of treat it like another person in the room. Uh, but no, no matter what, it all kinds kind of feels weird right now. And, uh, but we're glad you're here. Uh, I did want to, to report because Thursday I put out that Aaron Strohbach uh, thought that he either had malaria or dengue fever. He's had it before and so he would know better than me. Uh, but uh, apparently he is all better and uh, didn't have to see a doctor. And he said, so apparently I didn't have either, but I reminded them that he might have had both and God just healed him. So uh, we're glad that he's better. Uh, The fear was that he would go to a clinic to get checked and because of all the scare, they might just quarantine him and then he wouldn't be able to uh, minister to his family. He's the one that goes out and does all the shopping and then he's ministering to people in the church. So we're, we're thankful for that. Keep praying for Bethany. I know that I try to... Uh, not share exactly where she is. She is in a city that is currently at war, and uh, there's shelling going on. There's bombing. the 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 local airport was bombed. Uh, she is just. I think she said she was. She's east uh, of the the situation itself. She can hear it, but she's outside of it. And uh, if you know Bethany, that's good enough for her. And so she feels quite at home. But she would have us keep praying that. Um, the relationships that she's trying to build with these Muslim women would continue even under the lockdown, the curfew and all of that. So keep praying for her. Uh, Keep praying for Pastor Marcos and Josie and the church there in Chorillos. Um, They are in a lockdown and they have curfews and all of that. Um, Yeah. But anyway, they're probably going to move the location uh, of the church out of where they're at at Chorillos and try to get closer to Alto Peru. If you've been to Peru with us, um, you know that we spend a lot of time in Alto Peru, uh, which really is where Pastor Marcos's heart is. And uh, so let's just pray that uh, they can find a building that is conducive for ministry. And I don't know what he will plan on doing with his, the, place, the place that he rents right now, but he may want to move that as well. And I kind of hate to see that because the place that he rents now is, uh, is actually nice. And the places that he's rented in the past um, were troubling for me as a Westerner. So anyway, uh, we want to pray for them. Uh, real quick, uh, next Sunday is probably going to be an interesting Sunday for us for a couple reasons. Um, I'm going to be announcing the official date that we will be opening as a church And I I need everybody to understand that this is not politically motivated at all, it's not. Uh, Neither is it motivated by any constitutional right that the church might enjoy. Uh, The reasons that we have are are purely theological, okay? Does everybody understand that? It's purely theological. I have no interest in in, in joining some political movement right now uh, or asserting my rights that a government can either give or take away. Uh, I want to obey the scriptures and uh, and that's that 's really it. I appreciate the rights that we have and that we enjoy, uh, but my primary concern is with the Lord and with his word and um, and also, as many of you might know, uh, everybody here apparently knows that we're not refusing anyone that has spiritual needs. Uh, Whether that's uh, prayer or fellowship or the ministry of the word, we're not closing our doors for that so that everybody knows that. Um, Also next Sunday, what I'm going to be doing is examining uh, a number of theological issues with, with everyone in our fellowship. And I'm going to essentially answer three questions. Uh, the first one will be, when are we permitted to disobey government? When are we permitted to disobey government? Uh, and when are we permitted, uh, and, I, and I believe this is most important, when are we permitted to temporarily suspend our obedience to the scriptures? That probably sounds very funny to you. I'm actually going to be teaching it from Jesus, okay? And so when is it uh, uh, permitted to temporarily suspend our obedience to scripture? And then uh, what exactly... Uh, is the assembly of the church. Okay, not what the church does, uh, but what is the assembly of the church itself. But today, uh, we're gonna continue on in Hebrews chapter 13. We're gonna cover verses seven and eight. I know we're always uh, making a lot of ground uh, in Hebrews. Uh, The section actually goes all the way to verse 17, but I don't have enough time this morning uh, to get into all that. So uh, we will be just doing those two verses. Uh, For the sake of context, let's read the whole thing. I'll be reading God's word to you out of the New King James, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. The author says this, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, thanking or giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and share For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. And let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for all of its instruction. We're thankful that Attending it is your grace, that we might walk accordingly. And uh, so we thank you for that. We pray that this morning, uh, Lord, from this text, that you would encourage us. And um, yeah. Lord, I, I don't want to forget our missionaries. We're thankful for them. Lord, we're thankful for all they're doing. We ask that you would watch after them and uh, that you would encourage their hearts, especially as they're experiencing things uh, greater lockdowns than we are and uh, from governments that um, aren't as friendly as ours and so we pray that you look after them we pray that the ministry to your people and to the lost would continue and um, and Lord we give you thanks that Aaron is doing well and we pray that you'd keep him and his family well along with Bethany and Pastor Marcos. So Lord thank you we love you in Jesus name amen. All right, we'll turn back to verse seven. Verse seven, the author says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So the author of Hebrews, he wants his audience to, uh, to remember, follow, and consider uh, what happens to be dead church leaders. We'll get into that in a minute. So he says, remember those who rule over you. Uh, Before we look at who these rulers in the church were, uh, I think we should point out that the author uh, was not referring to leaders who were currently leading in that church. He's talking about leaders who have finished their course according to the last line, uh, whether by natural death or martyrdom. And either one could be the case uh, at this particular time in church history. So according to the last line, the conduct of these men has come to an end. So he's, call, he's having us remember those leaders whose conduct has come to an end, dead people. Uh, current leaders should be remembered, of course. Uh, that's not the discussion of verse 7, though. That's the dis- discussion of verse 17, and uh, we're not going to be there uh, this morning. And then before we look at what to remember about past leaders, uh, let's talk about who the the specific leaders were. Now, by this time in church history, by this time in church history, the local churches were exercising uh, autonomy, their own autonomy. Uh, They were not developing their own theology and doctrine that was autonomous or, or independent of the apostles, okay? But the individual churches were by this time governing themselves. They were independent, and uh, that was intentional by the apostles, and uh, and for that reason, I'm I'm a little critical of denominations. Uh, I'm not um, I'm not contrary to churches working together uh, together for a specific goal. I think that all churches should be doing that are that are legitimate churches. Uh, some of you are like, well, what's the difference between Calvary Chapel and a denomination? uh, Calvary Chapel Centralia is, is, uh, independent. We are an absolutely autonomous church. We're self-governed, uh, we're self-funded, we're self-everything, uh, with Christ as our head and, uh, under the, 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 leadership of, of the leaders of the church here. Now we do things with other Calvary Chapels. We have a common mission with many of them. We have a common philosophy and faith with them. But as far as a denomination, uh, we're, we're not a denomination. Nobody controls Calvary Chapel, okay? And uh, so anyway, that's, that's another issue. Uh, in church history, uh, we see the, the apostles, especially Paul, had quickly and intentionally uh, turned autonomy over to the local church so that each church was governed by its own pastors and elders. Uh, <clears throat> so the leaders being remembered at this time in history, they could have been uh, a combination of apostles, Uh, And dead pastors I don't know which one exactly He doesn't name anybody Um, The leaders that are remembered here He says these are teaching leaders Those who spoke Those who proclaimed the word of God to them Uh, This would be the pastor teacher Who according to Paul in Ephesians 4.11 He's been called to pastor and to teach the local church Um, Now as you guys hopefully know Uh, In the scriptures, especially when it comes to leadership, everything comes back to the ministry of the word. Everything comes back to the ministry of the word. Uh, Pastoral ministry is about getting God's word to God's people uh, so that they can understand it, so that they can live it, live by it. And uh, this is so necessary because it's in his word that we, we really discover who Christ is. We get acquainted with his character, we get acquainted with his ways and then his, his uh, will is prescribed to us. We have none of that apart from the scriptures. And so the scriptures must be taught. So if the pastor who uh, was no Bible teacher, if he is no Bible teacher, he's no pastor. Can we all agree on that? He's no pastor and he has nothing to be remembered for in the context of ministry. <clears throat> the legitimacy we might say of his office is completely upheld by the teaching of the word. Now, I personally think that that pastors are being remembered for uh, many things, but not always for the one thing. Uh, I listen to a lot of sermons. More and more, I think people are listening to sermons through podcasts. Uh, Recently, of course, YouTube has become uh, the platform of which everybody is out there. And um, there's a lot of funny pastors out there. There's the inspirational the, uh, the motivational uh, preachers, there's charismatic and creative, uh, there's engaging and even practical guys. But this happens all the time without really teaching the word. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, you listen to a sermon and, and it was engaging, it was inspiring, it was practical, it was all of that stuff. And then at the end you go, well, what did he say? What did he say? And uh, it happens all the time. And uh, they have... Every ingredient in the sermon minus the main ingredient. And when a pastor doesn't expound on the text of Scripture while spending an hour talking, an hour talking, he's really, what he's doing is he's exalting his own word above the word of God. You know, think about that. Uh, All those words, uh, but nothing of the word of God, uh, that's a colossal waste of time. He's a windbag. He's a windbag. When Peter was giving instruction regarding uh, the gifts, he said, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If he speaks, let him speak as the oracle. That is, let him speak the words of God, 1 Peter 4.11. The author of Hebrews would have us remember the rulers who actually taught the word of God to us. But sadly, I think more and more, the standard for pastors has been morphed into something that is just entirely foreign to the scriptures, and they reduce the scriptures to that of a conversation piece. And they're not, they're not. The pastor must be a studier of the word, and he must be a teacher of its content. Just some, some food for thought here. In regard to study, uh, Paul charged Pastor Timothy, saying, be diligent <clears throat> to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth second 2 timothy 2:15 so timothy in his pastoring and his teaching he was to uh, be approved to god that's where he was to find his approval and he was do that by diligent study because only then could he accurately teach and instruct god's people so without careful study he's not going to understand the scriptures right and he's not going to be able to teach them and that would be unacceptable. So the pastor should be a studier, not for man's approval but God's. Also, the pastor is under charge by God to teach the scriptures. Now, I've read the New Testament a couple times and it seems to me that what I'm about to read to you is probably the strongest sort of charge in all of the scriptures, okay? Paul says to Timothy, He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering, and he says, fulfill your ministry. That is his ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. So I, I believe from the scriptures, the pastor's most important duty, and I think he has other duties, but I think his preeminent duty is the teaching of scriptures because of its divine nature. I, I think that it, teaching is the only logical response to what we call the doctrine of inspiration, that it is God's word. Uh, when we look at the gospels, <clears throat> we find Jesus, the, the great shepherd, and mind you, the, uh, the word for shepherd is pastor. Pastor. It's poyman, okay? The text says that he went everywhere teaching and preaching the word of God. Everywhere, teaching and preaching the word of God. Matthew 4, 23, 9, 35. That's what the great shepherd did. He did this because he knew it was the very word of God and that man could not live without it. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus said that the word of God is truth. He says by it the believer is sanctified. Jesus believed in the inspiration of the Bible, okay? Um, Like his father, he exalted the word above everything, Psalm 138, 2. It was all about teaching the word to the people. And then Jesus then told the apostles, you guys know the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples, and then teaching those disciples to obey everything that Jesus had taught and commanded. That's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And so the early church... What do we find them doing? We find them continuing in Jesus' teaching. And the text actually says in Acts 2.42 that the people, the church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Where did the apostles get their doctrine? They got it from Christ. Okay. It was Jesus' teaching passed to them that they then passed to the people. Okay. And of course, Jesus also said that the Holy Spirit would lead those men into all truth. And we find that truth in the epistles, okay? The Holy Spirit would remind them of everything Jesus had taught. That's in the gospels. And then he would lead them into all truth. That's the epistles. And then that truth was passed on to us to teach and to live and all of that stuff. Paul later told the Ephesian elders that he was innocent concerning anyone's blood because he had not failed to deliver the whole counsel of God to them. Now when Paul says I'm innocent of the blood of any man as it's related to the teaching of the word, how serious do you think Paul took the word? He says teaching the whole counsel of God delivered me from the guilt of bloodshed. That sounds like there's quite the charge to the pastor and the Bible teacher, amen? I think that's true, yeah. Uh, when Paul was departing from them, uh, he says that he, he, he's leaving them with the word of God. This is what I have for you. This is what I'm gonna leave with you. And that's the scriptures, Acts 20, 32. James says that we're saved by the word of truth, James 1, 8. Paul told the Romans that faith is born by hearing the word of God by which man is saved, Romans 10, 17. Uh, Moses said that the word of God is our life, Deuteronomy 32, 47. Job said that he he treasured the word of God more than his life-sustaining food, In Psalm 119, you've read it. It's not a one sitting kind of read usually, but the word of God in there is everything. And because of what the word of God is, Peter said, like newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow by it, 1 Peter 2, 2. And something that always uh, concerns me is that God said that he looks on the one who trembles at his word. I look to the one who trembles at my word, Isaiah 66, verse 2, and the pastor is appointed as the steward and the teacher of the word. It's the truth. Yeah. Everything is based upon the teaching of God's infallible and authoritative word. So if you judge anything apart from his word, you're going to error You're going to. If your course is not directed by his word, you will stray. If you believe something other than the scriptures affirm about salvation, you will not be saved. The scriptures are light and they are life. So if the leaders of the church do not teach the word, they're not church leaders and they should be removed and they should be forgotten. Fair enough? Okay. I'm speaking about myself. But those who have taught the word rightly and faithfully, he says they should be remembered. What else? According to the author, he says, we should follow the faith of such leaders. He says, whose faith follow? That is their confession of faith, okay? What they believed. Now, of course, Jesus and the apostles, they set the standard for what it is we should believe, okay? And so the only pastor worth remembering is the one who believed what Jesus and the apostles believed. Believed what? Or about what? Well, first, about the inerrant, authoritative word of God. That's first. That's foremost. About the deity and humanity of Jesus, his eternal sonship to the Father, his virgin conception, his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, and his triumphant return. I think those are good things, at least at a minimal. Okay, at a minimal, yeah. faith worth following is the one that holds God's word in the highest regard. Now, uh, we've already said this, but really that is the one thing that, that stands above everything else. It's the understanding that God's word is final, it's infallible, it's inerrant, okay? Has all authority, it's everything. Uh, apart from it, we can't be assured of anything at all. Uh, Concerning the truth of God's word, this is what Paul believed. He says, all scripture is theopneustos. Theopneustos. It it literally means breathed out by God. All scripture is, he's saying, the very breath of God. And then Peter said that scripture never came by the will of man, but instead holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter one. 20, and then about this word, Paul affirmed that the scriptures are profitable for teaching. You guys know all these scriptures. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the man of God may be, the King James says perfect, but it means complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17. You know, if you, if you pay close attention to especially uh, the gospels, and then, uh, you know, the apostles in the epistles, don't want to confuse the two, you find that whenever either one wanted to establish an infallible truth, what they would do is they would quote the scriptures, but especially Genesis 1 through 3. I mean, Jesus says that in an argument, which he had many of them with the Pharisees, it happened to be an argument over the issue of marriage, divorce and remarriage. And uh, they appealed to Deuteronomy for authority. And Jesus says, I got higher authority. It's called Genesis chapter one and two. He's, he's searching for absolute authority from the scriptures. It's very interesting. Yeah. You see, if the word of God cannot be trusted, uh, nothing that we believe can be trusted. Everything stands or falls based upon the integrity, the historicity of the scriptures. And so if a pastor doubts the scriptures, he should be doubted, fired, and forgotten. That's a good standard to live by. Okay? He should be doubted. He should be fired and forgotten. His faith should not be followed. We should only follow men who believe in the infallible word of God. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you guys like syllogisms or if you even know what they are, uh, but a syllogism is an organized thought that affirms a truth. Okay? So I, there's, there's some that I like, some that I don't like, but logically speaking, uh, we know that God cannot error, He can't make mistakes. And the Bible is the word of God, and therefore the Bible in its original form is without error. In everything it affirms or implies regarding every subject it addresses. That is a statement of infallibility and inspiration. The same syllogism can be used in regard to God's authority. God possesses all authority. The Bible is the Word of God. So whatever the Bible affirms or implies regarding any subject it addresses, it does so with absolute authority. Absolute authority. Jesus and the apostles—they believed this, and they taught this. And any pastor worth remembering is the one who believed this and taught it, because Scripture would never tell us to follow the faith of anyone who believed otherwise. You'll never find the Scriptures doing that. Okay. And therefore, because Christ Himself declared in the Scriptures His deity and humanity, all of us should believe that. All of us should. We should uphold his eternal sonship to the Father and stand on his virgin conception, preaching his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, and we should be looking forward to his triumphant return and his reign over the earth. We should be looking forward to that. I wouldn't say affirm anything less and don't allow anything less from a pastor. And if you, I guess I would say, if you find me affirming anything less, please go down the street to another church. Okay, don't let me or anyone lead you astray. There's more. The author finishes verse seven by saying that we should consider the outcome of their conduct. Consider the outcome of their conduct, the end of their conduct. Just as we ought to follow their faith, we ought to consider this this fruit, this product uh, that came from their conduct. Now, it's interesting, the author has now called our attention to both faith and conduct. Faith and conduct. <clears throat> In theological terms, we would say orthodoxy and orthopraxy. When I typed orthopraxy into my notes, my computer didn't even recognize the word. Uh, I, I assure you, it's a real word, and uh, it means something. Okay? So orthodoxy is uh, you know, the teaching, uh, solid doctrine, uh, truthful doctrine, and orthopraxy is Practice, it's good practice. So we're talking about faith and practice and those things should really be the content of every like, creed or statement of faith that a church has. So ideally, <clears throat> the pastors we would like to remember are those who lived according to what they believed. They, they, they practiced what they preached. And I think that's the advantage we have today with you know, so many pastors uh, of the past that have finished well. Have finished well. In fact, this is one of the reasons I mostly read and study dead pastors. <clears throat> the The books that I have, the guys that I read, excuse me, <clears throat> most of them, almost every one of them, are dead. Are dead. You know, um, and the reason is, is because I know the end of their conduct. I know the end. When it comes to living pastors, we don't actually know what the end result of their conduct will be. We don't know. We're still waiting. You know, dead pastors who finish well, they're safe. Living pastors are a risk. And you go to Calvary Chapel, so you know the risk. (laughs) Okay? But there's a kicker. And perhaps some hypocrisy in our standard. We admire Abraham who lied about his wife, twice, okay? The father of, oh, and he had children with Hagar. So the father of faith wasn't perfect in faith. We study Moses, who had some weak moments with anger, misrepresenting the heart of God to the people, and then he missed out on Canaan because of it. We celebrate men like Gideon, who eventually caused Israel to stumble, by setting up an ephod in his city as a shrine, kind of an idol. Yeah. Uh, And Samson, wow. We read and adore, we sing, and we quote the work of David, who fell on his face a number of times in all the wrong ways. And then there's Solomon. Are you kidding me? We all love Peter. His faith was cracking. He said of Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he tried to divert Jesus from the cross for which Jesus called him Satan. Yeah. Peter denied the Lord three times and then in Antioch, the hypocrite was compelling Gentiles to live like Jews. And Paul had a heyday with him in front of everyone. Everyone. And what about Paul, the great church planter, the apostle to the Gentiles, who could become so prideful that God allowed Satan to buffet him with a thorn in the flesh? So, whose conduct do we consider? Whose conduct do we consider? Which leader do we choose and which one do we ignore? You know, in light of that survey, which standard would we enforce? Which standard? If all of the heroes of faith never fell on their face, whose example would we consider when we fall on ours? If no one else was restored after failure, what hope would there be for us? You know, let's not forget that repentance is actually a part of godly conduct. Repentance is a part of godly conduct which produces results and those results are worthy of our consideration. Do you guys believe that? Yeah. I often think of Peter, you know, who repented and was restored even after del- denying Jesus before men three times. I think of him often. Uh, that's a big deal to deny Jesus three times. But it's even more of a big deal when we consider what Jesus said in the, in, in the Gospels, he said, if any man denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Yeah. That's Matthew 10, But because of repentance, Peter was spared from being denied before the Father. Understand, being denied before the Father is equivalent to being condemned to hell forever. But Peter through repentance, he was restored to Jesus and then he was appointed as an apostle to the Jews and then chosen to pen two letters in the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, Isn't Peter's conduct and repentance worth considering? Isn't the outcome of his conduct worth our consideration? Or should we avoid considering him because of failure and weakness? I would tell you, be careful what your standard might be. You know, the story of sinful men restored through repentance is beautiful. The story of men, of sinful men restored through repentance, is beautiful and it's celebrated in the scriptures. You know, Psalm 51, the story of David's repentance and his restoration is not lamentable. It's not lamentable. It's beautiful, it's worthy of our attention. There's other cases like it in the scriptures. One is of a whole church, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul is so thankful that they repented. And the things that they repented of were terrible things. But they repented and Paul rejoiced. We are sinful men and women who often find ourselves in need of repentance. And so we should be considering the outcome of Peter's conduct, who is a Bible teacher in the local church in the local church, not an insignificant detail. So do you think the author of Hebrews would exclude Peter from the list of leaders we should remember? God certainly did not because Peter's writing is in the New Testament. Okay? When conduct produces godly fruit, it's worth considering and following Now, I believe Peter's story with many others is necessary for a little sobriety because we have a tendency to elevate standards well beyond the scriptures. It's true. We can demand perfection. I'm thankful we have the story of so many heroes of the faith who were restored after weakness and failure. Because of them, We know it's possible to be restored, and because of them, we know how to be restored. We know it's possible, and we know how. That's good conduct to consider. But I I actually know people who refuse to read men like A.W. Tozer and others because of their weaknesses. I think that's a little too much. You know, if perfect conduct is the only thing you will consider, you will probably end up being a hypocrite or a self-righteous person and that conduct is not worth considering, right? It's not worth considering. And I know that some people are saying, Pastor Ben, are you defending sinners? Yes. Just like Jesus is doing right now. Have you not read Romans 8, 29 through 39, how Jesus defends sinners in the courts of heaven? Or Hebrews 7.25, how Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us? Or do you think he's intercessing for innocent people? If he is, he's not intercessing for any of us, okay? Don't misunderstand, he doesn't defend sin. Sin is unacceptable, but he is the sinner's advocate. And if he wasn't the sinner's advocate, there would be no hope. A leader's conduct should be considered, but the fruit of their conduct can prove to be more important. We don't want to repeat the sins of anyone, amen? Of no one. But how leaders conduct themselves in repentance is essential, it's godly, and should be followed with humility. Understanding that these men, of course, are not the savior, and their faith and conduct is secondary and it's passing, it's passing, okay? Pastors come and go, good and bad, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, verse eight. That's why it's in the text, okay? Yeah. Wherever man has failed us, the son of man has succeeded. Jesus is our hope. Now, this statement about Christ, uh, it's a reference to his immutability, uh, his unchangeableness, but in the context of remembering, following, and considering church leaders. It seems random in the text almost, doesn't it? It's like, where did that come from? But he's talking about, in the, he's, he's referring to that in the context of remembering, following, and considering church leaders. It's a reminder to us that while some men provide a shining example they are transcended by Jesus's, completely. And whenever man cannot be trusted, Jesus is faithful, and he's unwavering. When there is no man worthy of remembrance, whose faith should not be followed, and whose conduct is unworthy of consideration, we always have Jesus, and he's absolutely everything. He's more than just an example to us. His unchanging nature, is an assurance to us. It's a guarantee, it's a guarantee. Because he cannot change, he cannot fail us in his leadership. He will never embarrass us by his conduct. How many you guys have been embarrassed by a church leader before? I don't mean me. But how many have you been embarrassed by? I remember there's, there's been certain church leaders in the past, men I respect very highly, who set a date for for the rapture. Guess what? It never came. And that was a little embarrassing, okay? I still love them, I still respect them. Because of Jesus' unchangeable nature, he cannot betray us or abandon us. He can't leave us, right, or forsake us. He can't lead us astray with error, so there's no risk in remembering and following and considering Jesus. There no, there's no risk in it. What he believes and teaches is truth. His conduct is flawless. You know, that's a great standard for a savior. But I think it's a little over the top for a church leader, okay? Now, I, I realize that many of you have struggled with a variety of pastors over the years, some, especially some of you people that are older than me, okay? They failed morally, theologically, in their integrity, They were power hungry. They were just wrong. And sadly, some of those men have not repented to this day. They have not repented. You see, now is not the time to consider them. Now is the time to turn your eyes upon Christ whose faithfulness and love never ends. Never ends. You know, the author of Hebrews has already encouraged us to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So when there's no one else to look to, there's always Christ. He'll never leave, he'll never forsake us. He's always with us he's always right, he's always good, amen? Okay, now before I close in prayer, uh, I want to encourage everyone to listen uh, next Sunday. It affects all of us and uh, I think everybody should be listening. Uh, I'm I'm going to be teaching out of Romans chapter 13 verses one through seven. I'm gonna be teaching out of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 through 25. And I'm going to talk about Matthew 12, 1 through 8. So I'd, I encourage you to study ahead, and then we'll consider all of those passages together um, next Sunday. All right. And then we'll draw from the scriptures. And then, as I said, we'll set a course of action for our fellowship. And um, the details will come out after that. All right. So... Uh, Why don't you guys stand and pray with me? If you're at home, you can stand and pray with us. As as, uh, also, well, Father, thank you for your word and and Lord, I I thank you for so many people that have gone before us and their example, their their confession. Lord, I'm also thankful for their repentance because just there would be nobody to choose from, nobody to enjoy their writing, their preaching if they had to be as perfect as you. And Lord, you have provided many people for us. And so Lord, while there are certainly boundaries for us to live by, to, to think through, um, Lord, I think a lot of us could use a little more grace and because uh, I'm just afraid that people would miss out on so many great things. Lord, I have learned from so many men from the past and, uh, and they shared in my weakness and, uh, and I'm thankful for them. And uh, so yeah. And Lord, those of us that uh, struggle uh, remembering and considering and following the faith of any pastor, Lord, uh, I pray they would not be stumbled by that, they wouldn't be distracted by that, but they would they would strongly look to you, Lord, in your unchangeableness, your, your loyalty, your faithfulness, and Lord, your love. And Lord, I pray that you would be with my church family this week and uh, that you would bless and encourage their hearts. Lord, you grant your grace to them. So Lord, we just love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, well, We might see you next week. Some of you, we probably won't. But anyway, we love you. And uh, we do look forward to seeing you. All right.